With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. This is Jeff T. from the Club 520 Podcast. When it comes to your feet, eBay's got your back. When you see the blue check mark that says authenticity guaranteed, that means real experts are checking your sneakers. Every stitch, down to the sole. They even smell them because nothing says fresh like the scent of real kicks. So kick back and relax. From the drop to your doorstep, eBay doesn't play games with your sneaker game. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guaranteed. Visit ebay.com for terms. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. The volume. Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brever and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we are into the top 10 of our top 25 NBA players of all time series. We will be doing numbers 10 through 6 in this episode. If you've missed our previous three parts to this series covering 25 through 11, I recommend you go check those out. But before we get into this one, Logan, we've done this every show so far, but just quickly, why don't you remind us or brief us uh, on the criteria that you're going to be using for this list? What I value most is team success. Did your team win games when you were available and on the floor? The next thing I value the most is were you the best player on a championship team or a team that got to the NBA Finals? Uh, next, I really heavily value two-way impact. I don't want liabilities on one end of the floor or the other. I think both are extremely valuable. I then value peak next. Uh, were you greater than another player at your absolute apex? I value that slightly more than longevity. Uh, and then longevity is my final category. But like I said, uh, if your peak is that much higher than somebody, I can uh, excuse you for not playing super long. So that's my criteria mm-hmm. in that order. So I think clearly the most important thing is how much are you contributing to winning at the highest level championship value. It is not about how dazzling you are as a one-on-one scorer. It is the combination of the things that you excel at and how that drives winning. I really value playoff production because I think that that is the most important stage that tests a player the most, of course. Like you, I really value people who got over the hump as the guy to win a title. Now that we're in the top 10, that applies to everybody. But we're not just counting rings here. The context matters. The role that you played matters. The supporting cast, the level that you reached, all of that is totally important in valuing championships here. And accolades, as I've said before, I really don't value too much. I think they can give a rough picture of how a player was performing at a time, but they're far from perfect. Voters make mistakes. They make decisions we don't agree with. There are agendas and narratives, and it's just a far from perfect way to evaluate greatness, just stacking up resumes in terms of accolades and whatnot. And like you, I value peak more than longevity. If the peaks are very close, it does matter that you can sustain it, but it's hard for me to just look at somebody and say, yeah, that guy was better and he achieved 
maybe more of great historical significance even in a shorter amount of time, but because he didn't play for as long, I'm going to put him below somebody else. That's just not mostly how my thinking works here. And one last thing that I haven't mentioned up to this point that sort of felt self-evident to me, but I think is actually really important is that we're judging people within the scope of their own eras. This is not an issue of, well, how would Bill Russell perform in the NBA today? It's a question of how did Bill Russell perform versus his peers, his contemporaries. This is the example that I always use, but Jesse Owens, a lot of people would consider one of the greatest sprinters of all time. If we just took his time from the 1930s, he wouldn't qualify for the like Olympic final today. So people get better in every sport across time. Technology evolves, strategy evolves, skill level just inevitably improves. So you can't expect somebody to be 40, 50 years ahead of their time. I think that's important for the top 10 because of a couple players who uh, will be appearing here. So with that, quickly before we get into your number 10, why don't you catch us up on your 25 through 11? All right, really quick. 25, John Havlicek. 24, Jason Kidd. 23, Giannis Antetokounmpo. 22, Kawhi Leonard. 21, Moses Malone. 20, Nikola Jokic. 19, I had Elgin Baylor. 18, Oscar Robertson. 17, Dirk Nowitzki. 16, Julius Irving. 15, Kevin Garnett. 14, Kevin Durant. 13, Steph Curry. 12, Kobe Bryant. And number 11, Jerry West. All right, I have D. Wade at 25, Carl Malone at 24, Charles Barkley at 23, Chris Paul at 22, Moses at 21, Giannis at 20, I have Dirk at 19, Dr. J at 18, Oscar at 17, Jokic at 16, KG at 15, Jerry West at 14, Kevin Durant at 13, then I have Kobe at 12, and Akeem Olajuwon at 11. So, Logan. Who do you have in your 10 spot? At number 10, I have the great Bill Russell. And Bill was hard to rank because he is super, super accomplished. He's a five-time MVP. He's an 11-time champion. And he only didn't win a ring in his career in 1958 and 1967. In 58, he loses in the finals in six to the Hawks. In 67, he loses in the conference finals in five to Wilt's 76ers. Now, like you mentioned earlier at the episode, it's hard to rank... Uh, guys of this era because there's only eight teams in this era and I know a lot of people Carson immediately when you talk about Bill Russell when you talk about Wilt oh they were playing against plumbers and electricians well don't disrespect them maybe they had side jobs they had to put food on the table okay guys (laughs) maybe a guy was a a trash man um I think that's such a bad representation of basketball like I think first and foremost I want to say, I don't think it's how we should think about basketball. Like, obviously, athletes are going to be better. Players are going to get better in terms of skill and athleticism as time passes. But I also think it's a bad argument because I think Bill Russell would have been great in whatever era you plopped him in. I think you could plop him in today's NBA, and he would be one of the best defenders, if not the best defender on the planet. But... I do think that Bill Russell is the greatest defender of all time because of his skill set and how great he made his team defenses. In 13 seasons, he had the number one, well, he helped anchor the Boston Celtics and make them the number one defense 12 times. The other season, they had the number two defense. And it's important to contextualize that in this era, protecting the rim is the most valuable asset in basketball because guys are just trying to get to the rack. There's no three-point line. 
shots at the rim are the most efficient, the most effective. So deterring people from coming into the paint and to the rim is the most valuable skill set that you could have in this era of basketball. And we don't have the numbers for this era, but he would have averaged eight or more blocks per game in this period. He's 6'10 with a 7'4 wingspan. He had a 46-inch vertical. Famously, uh, Bill ranked as the seventh best high jumper in the world in 1956. He was truly a freak athlete. And uh, you talk about all the things that make him a great defender. Uh, he's positionally sound. He has insane instincts. But I also like that uh, how Bill applied constant pressure uh, on guys when they drove to the rack. But his length allowed guys to drive by him, and he would still be able to block them on the other side of the rim. He was just so hard to create space against on the inside. And one of the most underrated things I think about uh, Bill as a defender is how agile and how such a graceful mover he is for a guy his size. He's great recovering on defense when beat off the dribble, but I just think there's a different kind of athletic fluidity than other big men, than even like a Hakeem Olajuwon. Like, in comparison, Hakeem almost moves like a... I, I don't want to sound disrespectful here, but like a statue. You know, he moves like a a big man. He's lumbering a little bit. He's a little slower, right? He's agile than other run-of-the-mill big men. But in comparison to Bill, like, Bill is fluid. He is, he moves so gracefully. Um, Bill had great hands. He's great at jumping passing lanes, poking balls loose on the block on entry passes. Uh, And I looked at uh, some other legendary big men of this era because we don't have on-off numbers. We don't have all of this great analytical data that we can look at, but we can look at head-to-head matchups against of great big men of this era. He held Bob Pettit uh, to about a percentage uh, percentage point lower than his average field goal percentage in the playoffs. He's 60 and 31 lifetime versus Bob. He held Dolph Shays to 35.2% in the playoffs. That's about 3% below uh, his average. He was 64 and 36 lifetime against Dolph Shays. He held Willis Reed to 40.3% in his lifetime. That's over 7% lower than Reed's average. He's 39 and 13 versus Willis lifetime. He held Jerry Lucas to almost 11% lower than his average, 38.5% in the playoffs. And he's 39 in 23 against Lucas lifetime. And he was the only guy that could truly limit Wilt. Wilt dominated everybody else of this era, but Bill was the real deterrent that could slow him down. Now, why does Bill Russell not rank higher on my list? Well, I just think he has offensive limitations as a scorer. His career high in points was 37. He's a career 44% field goal shooter in the regular season. He has four different playoff runs where he is under 36.5% from the field. But I do think that Bill was a good offensive player. I'm not saying that he's not a plus on that end. I think that's something that can get misconstrued too. I think Bill is a criminally underrated passer. 4.3 assists per game, that's the third most by a center ever. He has the third most total assist by a center ever. And I really do love the... Celtics passing of this era when you go back and look at this it's so much fun it's Spurs-esque it's Warriors-esque they are throwing extra passes they are getting that extra look and it's really ahead of their time in terms of ball movement but also that they're running DHOs with Bill Russell in this era like He's an underrated ball handler in space. When you give him a lane, Bill could push it coast to coast. He could take a wide open lane and go to the rack. Like, yes, he's limited. He's not a shooter, but he's not a bad offensive player. I think that's something that can get caught up. You know, we compare him to Wilt, and Wilt is one of the greatest scorers of all time. That's just not fair. You know, Bill is good for his era. Um, 
And, and his fluidity helps on offense, too. He's a great hustler at all times. He moved with great ease. He was great in transition. Like I said, either going coast-to-coast coast or finding guys on outlet passes. So I do think that Bill is underrated as an offensive player. I think he's good as an offensive player. But he is still limited as an overall scorer. He doesn't have a deep bag. Now, granted, I think we have to mention that he didn't need to be. He had a great team. So he didn't ever have to develop this and become a great scorer because his teams were so dominant around him. But I am going to hold that slightly against him, and that's why Bill can't be higher on my list. I want a guy who can go out and get buckets for himself while also being impactful defensively. But like I said, I really do think Bill's the greatest defender of all time. I think he's underrated offensively, but I feel like to put him higher than this, it's just it's disingenuous to other guys who actually could go out and manufacture and get their own buckets by themselves. But... No disrespect to Bill. He is one of the 10 greatest players of all time, but I think he is right at 10. So I did a top 10 players of all time list a year ago, and I think that I got the entire Russell thing completely wrong, especially in comparison to Wilt Chamberlain, which we can get into later. But here's the thing with Bill. I don't think you can apply modern standards to him where you think, okay, you need to be this offensive number one in order to drive winning at the highest level because he was such an exceptional outlier in the history of the game defensively playing in an era where that was more possible because he's the greatest rim protector that we've ever seen in an era where protecting the rim was so overwhelmingly important that like nobody has ever transformed one side of the ball like Bill Russell did. It's not even close. None of the great offensive engines compare to how completely he transformed that Celtics defense for 13 years. He came in, improved the Celtics defensive rating by eight points immediately as a rookie. So they go from sixth of eight teams defensively to comfortably number one. When he retired in 1969, they fell off defensively by 10 points in terms of defensive rating. So that's from going comfortably best defense in the league to eighth of 14 teams. The Celtics in his tenure were the number one defense by an average of 4.2 points per 100 possessions. To put that into context, I looked through every year since 1997. That's just the data that NBA.com has readily available. The biggest gap between first and second place in any one year was 2.6 points per 100 possessions, okay? For over a decade, the Celtics are outpacing the competition by one and a half times that, even more, on average. And that is singularly the reason they were a great team. The Celtics were last in the league in offensive rating three times with Bill Russell, Logan. Each one of those years, they finished first in net rating, and they won the title every one of those times. They were that much better than everybody else defensively. And why were they that great defensively? Respect to Casey Jones. Respect to John Havlicek. What happened when Russell retired? The defense sucked. What happened before Russell got there? The defense sucked. So today, we generally view truly great offense as being more valuable than truly great defense. But in the case of Russell at that time, I just think it's the opposite. Because we've never seen somebody impact one side of the ball like that. And honestly, I think that if anything, we can overrate the Celtics supporting cast because they have these raw offensive numbers. But 
It's not being done efficiently. It's not in a way that is driving good team offenses. They didn't have a good team offense, Bill Russell's entire career, and they were still the most dominant dynasty that we have ever seen. So it doesn't come down to like the exact 11 rings dynamic of it. Because yeah, I do think that rings in today's NBA are more valuable just given that there was less competition. But we have never seen a team be that much head and shoulders above the rest of the league for over a decade. And it's because of one player, man. Like, Kuzi came and went. Tommy Heinsohn came and went. Sam Jones was, you know, leading in terms of scoring for a time. And then it was Havlicek before his peak. All those guys came and went. Bill was the constant driving the most dominant team for a sustained period that we've ever seen. And given that he was still a good offensive player because he's one of the best passing bigs that we've ever seen and was so valuable to starting the fast break offense, which was so important at that time, transition scoring with the crazy pace of that era. The best rebounder along only Wilt. Those are the only two in that top tier that we've ever seen. I have Bill Russell a lot higher than this. It is my biggest change, and spoiler alert, I will not be talking about him on this episode anymore. As in, he's in my top five. That surprises me a little bit. So you don't think... Man... I mean, I, I understand your case here. I just can't have a guy who's that offensively limited in my eyes any higher than this. I, I held it against but why? Steph. They never had a good team offense. They didn't need to have a good team offense. He was that much better than everybody else in the history of the sport defensively. Yeah, I get what you're saying. I just can't. I, I value two-way value so heavily that I don't know when I'm looking at it. Where do you have Magic Johnson, Logan? Very was Magic Johnson a good defensive player? I think Magic Johnson was a yeah good defensive player. I think he wasn't you know all-time great. I think he was a good defensive player, yeah. And so I have Magic very high. On I would my disagree. List. Why? Because of defensive playmaking? Yeah. I mean, and at his size. I, I mean, don't think there's any argument. Magic was a better defensive player than Bill Russell was an offensive player. Okay. I mean, Magic is arguably one of the greatest offensive players ever, though. I mean, I think that's the distinction. I, if I'm going to hold it against Steph Curry for not being as great defensively, I'm going to hold it against Bill that he's not a bucket getter. I need all my guys in my top 10 to go out and at least manufacture some sort of offense. But that's an inconsistent standard. You're not expecting everybody to be great on both sides of the ball. Magic is not great on both sides of the ball. There is no argument there, right? His foot speed was not very good defensively laterally. Uh, he wasn't highly engaged on that end consistently, right? Even at his size, yeah, he could defend the post, but he wasn't offering like real secondary rim protection. Like Magic's just not a good defender. But he's one of the five greatest offensive players ever, you know? But what I'm saying is Bill Russell's defensive dominance did more than what we think of like the greatest offensive engines in today doing because it was a different time. How do you explain the result otherwise? of them overwhelmingly dominating the league like that. Like, I understand what you're saying because I have thought like that in the past, but when you actually dig into it, it wasn't a, a significant enough weakness to keep them from winning every damn year overwhelmingly because of him. Yeah, I understand that. I mean, our criterias are different. I get that. I just, I don't know. It's I, He drove winning. I'll give him that. I mean, he drove winning more than any other player in NBA history, and that's the edge, but I... I just can't do it, man. Like, I even thought I even thought about putting Steph, because of his offensive brilliance, I thought about putting Steph over Bill, man. I thought about putting Steph over uh, my number nine. I thought about putting Steph over my number eight. But I just can't do it, man. I can't have, I can't have Bill any higher because of his offensive limitations. 
Like it in a one to one. So let me ask you that it's tough. It's tough because if you go like, do you want Wilt or Bill? Then you go into the question of asking, what era are we playing in? Because that context matters. Bill dominated his era of basketball. Well, no. They played in the same era, and one of them was the most dominant winning force that we've ever seen. I know, but I'm saying that, yeah. I mean, all I'm saying is that, do you really want a guy that's that offensively limited? In, yes. Like, I don't know. I would probably take Wilt over Bill. Dude, I mean, I feel like, and again, I have been guilty of this in the past, but we're getting into theoreticals that apply far more in different eras than they do in the 60s. The question of, do you want him? He was the greatest singular force on one side of the ball that we have ever seen. His offensive limitations are the reason he can't be number one on this list to me, that he can't be top three on this list. But there's a reason that he drove a level of winning that we have never seen in the history of the game outside of that time. Would you do you have do you have Wilt higher than Bill or do no. you have Bill higher than Wilt? I have Bill higher than Wilt because I think that the way that I have looked at this in the past, like last year, when I think that I made the wrong call, was Wilt was undeniably the greater basketball talent. When you think about all of the things that at various stages in his career Wilt was capable of, right? Astronomical scoring with good efficiency individually. Okay, a level of skill and power and athleticism while being just literally the biggest player in the league that is historically rare. And then you think about those prime Sixers years where he is scoring very efficiently and he's weaponizing his playmaking and he's a great defender. And then you think about the Lakers years where he is, you know, still contributing defensively and with some of that playmaking, but is not scoring at nearly as high a level. You think about the totality of what he did throughout his career at various stages, but I think very rarely did he put it all together in terms of winning traits in a way that compares to what Bill could do because as good of a defender as Wilt was, and he was pretty great, Bill was leaps and bounds above him still. Like, the early years for Wilt... I think, sure, it's this incredible volume scoring, but he was so uniquely bad as a playmaker that his team offenses weren't good. And maybe he didn't have great personnel around him, but that's a rarity for like any truly great offensive player throughout NBA history, Logan, you can churn out a good team offense. Maybe not a great one, right? If you're looking at what Steph Curry had to do in 2021, but when he was on the floor, they were damn good. And that doesn't apply to Wilt because he didn't have an understanding of how to weaponize the threat of his scoring for playmaking to amplify his teammates. And then like 1967 Wilt is better than Bill Russell. I don't think there's any question because he was able to be that great defensive anchor while being a incredible offensive engine with that blend of scoring and playmaking. But then you get into the Lakers years and he loses a little something in terms of scoring pop after his knee injury. And I mean, is like the 1A and 1B on that 72 title team as we talked about. So the theory of Wilt Chamberlain is certainly better. But the results, the reality of the winning impact year to year is that Russell came into the league and dominated like that because he was such a defensive genius and he was able to understand how to drive winning basketball in a way that it just took Wilt much longer to get. So yeah, the variety of skill sets there is more impressive with Wilt. The fact that, you know, he could be this overwhelmingly productive offensive number one. But in terms of driving team results, I do believe that over the course of a 13-year career, Russell was far more consistently impactful at those highest all-time levels. Do you think Wilt ever had a better team than Bill when they were, you know, going at it? 
yeah, sure. I think the 65 through 67 Sixers are more talented. I think that 1969, there's no question that the Lakers were more talented than the Celtics. That's fair. I mean, I don't know. Bill slowed Wilt down, but Wilt still got his, and Wilt could... Head-to-head, it just doesn't... I don't know, man. It doesn't impress me. I, I can't... Will got buckets like nobody of his era, man. Like, I can't... He's still offensively brilliant. Like, I just... There's such a massive gap to me between the scoring ability of Wilt and Bill that, like, I just... I cannot bring myself to put Bill above Wilt. But, Logan, when you're looking at Wilt's peak Ross scoring numbers... I think you and I both fundamentally agree that the best basketball strategy in terms of driving winning offense, if you're a great offensive player, is not to shoot 50 times a game, right? It is to blend that scoring and playmaking, okay? If you're a LeBron James, right, when you draw the second defender, what do you do? You create a better shot for your teammate. If you're a Steve Nash coming out of pick and roll and the big is playing, he's hedging right? Okay, now you've got a passing lane to the roller. You make that pass, but he does the jump pass where he's weaponizing the threat of his scoring. Like, that's what all the greatest offensive players ever have done. And that's how they generate great team offenses. It's not just, yeah, I can be really talented, but I'm not enhancing those around me. And there's such a clear historical precedent that that does not lead to winning at the highest level. And it didn't for Wilt in those teams. So I understand that it's a more impressive skill set. And again, in theory, I get it. But who put it all together, man? It was Russell. Yeah, I mean, I understand your argument. I just don't think... Yeah, and maybe it is the skill set that does it for me. I mean, that's my argument here is just that I don't think Bill could ever do what Wilt did, and I value Wilt scoring. I know that it didn't. I get what you're saying because Wilt did put it together in 1967. He did, and he finally figured it out. And that, I guess, is enough for me. Um, he didn't do it consistently enough. He didn't get over the hump enough, like Bill did. But I don't think Bill could do what Wilt did. No, not in 1967. He couldn't. But for 13 years, he was far more consistently proficient in driving basketball winning at the highest level. So, uh, yeah, I think Wilt's absolute peak is higher. I do not think that it outweighs the consistency with which Russell was at a higher level. And I do believe that the team results absolutely back that up. Okay. My number 10 is Steph Curry, who I know you had at number 13. The reason that I have him here is that, in my opinion, he is a top five scorer and a top five offensive engine ever. Over his career, 24.6 points per game on plus 7.6% true shooting versus league average. That is the highest mark of anybody up in this top 10. And since 2015, he's been over 27 points per game while maintaining that ludicrous efficiency. To me, he is the deadliest pick and roll scorer ever when you consider greatest pull-up shooter ever unbelievable touch in the floater range one of the craftiest and most skilled finishers around the rim that we've ever seen even if he doesn't get there at the highest volume a lethal isolation bucket getter given the combination of those same traits and some of the best ball handling that we've ever seen and of course the greatest off-ball player there has ever been with his level of activity his quickness uh, his just variety of ways to get open off ball while being the greatest shooting weapon there has ever been And it's been talked about so many times at this point, but the gravity 
the massive impact that has enhancing shot quality for his teammates, right? If somebody is constantly so attached to Steph off ball that they can't offer help in any situations, or if two guys follow him coming around a screen, or if it's just trapping him in pick and roll when he does have the ball, right? The constant threat of his shooting and his ability to playmake off of that, it's just one of the greatest offense enhancers that we have ever seen. I also think... It's worth noting how much of a strength his playmaking is in a way that the raw assist numbers probably don't account for because he did switch from being more of that primary ball handler, pick and roll heavy star in the Mark Jackson years to Steve Kerr playing more off ball, weaponizing that constant uh, off ball threat. But we see it right when he needs to like game two against the Lakers. Okay. They just want to put the ball in his hands, his ability to dissect that high drop as a playmaker to get into the teeth of defense and then facilitate he has been one of the best passers in the league for a decade. And the impact of this on the Warriors' offense is among the greatest of all time. He has improved their offensive rating by 10 or more points per 100 possessions eight times and by 15 or more points per 100 possessions four times. Like, all of those are 99th percentile marks. 15 plus is a 100th percentile mark. It's absolutely ludicrous. And again, comparing him to Kobe, who... We both left out of our top 10. If you want our explanation on that, you can watch our last episode. But this is an elite volume score in Steph who can do so in a variety of ways, but who is so much more efficient, historically so, who is the better playmaker, who is more impactful off the ball, who has delivered repeatedly on the playoff stage at even higher volume than in the regular season. And so that just makes for a greater all-around offensive player. And his playoff resume is sensational. 27 points per game there is tied for 7th all-time with a minimum of 50 games on plus 5.5% true shooting. His scoring translates as well as anybody ever because he can continually generate those very high-quality looks from deep. And he's just one of the great shot makers that we have ever seen. And I also think this stretch over the last three years that we have seen from him has been historically impressive for a person of this age. I think if you're looking at 33 to 35, the only dudes who have ever been at this level are LeBron and Michael Jordan. Like KD might be close, right? Kareem might be close, but I think Steph is actually in the top three there. 2001 is one of the great floor raising jobs that we've seen putting up 32 points per game on 65.5% true shooting. The Warriors go 37-26 and 26 with him. They go 1-8 and eight without him. It is one of the worst offensive rosters in basketball. He gets them to play as a 77th percentile offense when he's on the court. And then 2022, without another offensive star out there, given Clay's regression, he goes takes that team to the title, leads them to be an even better playoff offense than defense, although they were a very good two-way team, has a historic scoring postseason, over 27 points per game on 61% true shooting. And then this year, with a team that just could never really put it all together, I'm not saying like this is all-time stuff, right? Because there's been players of this echelon who throughout their prime didn't have good supporting casts and had like great two round playoff runs that people don't remember and celebrate years down the line. Akeem being a great example, as I talked about a bit last episode, but just demonstrating that he is still at this level where he can be a top two offensive player alive behind only Nikola Jokic to me right now, putting up 30 plus so efficiently with that level of playmaking. It's a historical rarity to be this great at this age. His impact on winning because of how great he is as an offensive engine is also all-time 
his on-off of plus 11.3, that being how much better the Warriors are with him on the court versus off it per 100 possessions, tied for the best on record with Kevin Garnett. They only started tracking this in 1997. The Warriors outscore teams, period, by plus 8.3 points per 100 possessions when he's on the court. That trails only Tim Duncan on this list. So churning out consistently elite teams that are just not at that level without him. And of course, over his last eight healthy seasons, he has four rings, he has six finals trips, four of those finals trips coming without Kevin Durant. And the two years that it hasn't been the Warriors in the finals, 2021, we talked about terrible supporting cast. And this past year, the rest of the team is really the only reason there. Steph was pretty phenomenal. Had a couple rough shooting nights against the Lakers, but good God, he was the only reason they were there. And the Lakers were just a better team to me. So it is worth noting that, yeah, Steph has had some great supporting casts, especially the KD years, right? I think those are the two most talented teams ever, the 2017 Warriors especially and the 2018 Warriors. But he has driven winning with or without any of his supporting stars on the court with him. 2017 or 2019, the Warriors went 27-4 and when Steph played and KD did not in the regular season, and he got them to the 2019 Finals without KD. Meanwhile, when Steph didn't play but KD did, they were barely above 500. Without Draymond, Steph has won 64% of his games. Without Clay, Steph has won 63% of his games, both those numbers since 2013 when he became a star. You take either one of those guys off, and those are still like 52-53 win paces that Steph is propelling. He has won 72% of his games overall since 2013. The Warriors have won 39% of their games without him. It's just very rare in the course of NBA history that we have seen an eight-year stretch like this, where a team is this consistently dominant, where a team is this overwhelmingly great on the offensive side of the ball, and where there is one player who is so clearly overwhelmingly responsible for it. That is Steph Curry. It's one of the highest peaks that we've ever seen. The reason I can't have him higher, I mean, compared to other guys on this list, yeah, his two-way impact isn't great. Frankly, that doesn't matter too much to me because of how monumentally incredible he is offensively. And I would argue that past like 2016, that hasn't really been something that like is attacked and exploited, right? I mean, sure, you have the 2018 finals, LeBron hunting lots of switches with Steph. It's LeBron. But as he's gotten bigger and stronger, he's become a much more capable, very respectable defender. The bigger thing is just longevity to me, that he has been a star for 10 years. He's been a top three player for eight. That doesn't quite compare to most of the guys here. And I do think the two rings with KD can't be valued quite as much as others, which in some ways maybe hurts Steph a bit, right? Because I absolutely think that the 2016 Warriors running it back with Harrison Barnes, bum ass, they still would have been <laughs> right towards the top of the league. And Steph made them so elite with or without KD. But nevertheless, we have to look at what actually happened. And although Steph was great, I absolutely value his greatness in those runs. They are not the two most valuable rings ever. But I do think he has to be in the top 10 because I believe he is a top five offensive player ever. He has been the driving force behind four rings and six finals appearances. His efficiency is unrivaled. His shooting brilliance is unrivaled. And... That makes him one of the 10 greatest players ever to me. Straight up, uh, I mean, do you think that him or Magic as an offensive engine? I think 
they are incredibly close. And the reason that I have Magic higher is basically because he did it for a few more years. If Steph maintains this level for three more years, I mean, he's going to be higher on this list. I promise you that. Yeah, I think that you could have Steph already higher. I know that I had him at 13 on my list because of two-way impact. But like I said, Steph's overall offensive impact, I played with him up into number eight on my list. You can't understate how important uh, he is and how dominant he has been. I think when you're looking at you know 21st century offensive engines, I think it's him and LeBron. And I don't really think there's anybody else that is that great of a singular force on the offensive end. And even... You know, I think Steph's going to be at this level for a few more years, Carson. I'm not excited to see the the slow fall, but I mean, I'm re- I am excited to see if Steph Curry enters a new era where he's like he's going to be just as dangerous in his old age because of his shooting ability. You know, I don't know if he's going to be a role player. I don't know if he's still going to be starting. What that's going to look like, Steph is going to still be able to really impact basketball games at you know, maybe, you know, up to age 40 or something like that. It'd be it'd be crazy to see, but I think he's scaled out to be great for a long period of time, you know, almost as, as you know, as great as anybody else. Like, I think Steph is, just projects to be a really great old offensive player too. You know, some guys don't age gracefully, but I think Steph could age like, like Tom Brady on the basketball court, man. I mean, he's a top three player on the planet to me undeniably playing at as high a level as he ever has at 35 years old. That is insane. That is a complete historical rarity. So absolutely, I think he can continue building to his case. And if he can put together another like meaningful deep run, if the Warriors can get the right pieces around him, and given that they won't be doing it with overwhelming talent, because we know how tough and how special that 2022 run was, Steph is honestly probably going to be in my top five, but he's not there yet. And I do think another thing that's relevant in the magic point is, of course, we're not just comparing rings here, but the fact that Steph has done it twice in terms of fully climbing the mountain without those overwhelmingly overpower 27-18 teams does matter. Of course, magic played with great talent, but you know, magic is still consistently churning out number one offenses, bringing the Lakers to the finals and winning titles when Kareem is far past his apex. It is not at the level of talent of peak Steph, peak KD, peak Dream on peak, peak Clay all together. Okay. Who do you have in your nine spot, Logan? At number nine is a guy that we briefly discussed on last episode. And I debated whether I go with him or Bill Russell at this spot. I ultimately decided to drop Bill to 10. At number nine, I have Akeem Olajuwon. And at his peak, which I considered 85 to 97, he's consistently 24-12-3 on 52% from the field. I think he's the second greatest defensive player ever, only behind Bill. I think he's the greatest defensive playmaker ever. I gave out some of these numbers on last show. I'll throw them out again. 4.8 stocks per game. That's steals and blocks per game. That's the most of all time. 0.4 more than second place David Robinson. He's got the most seasons with three or more blocks per game in NBA history with six. He was a three-time league leader there. And across 13 seasons, he turned out consistently great defenses. Ten of them were top ten. Eight of them were top five. And he anchored one number one defense. And I really do. I still think he is a underrated offensive player. We, we talked about it a little bit last episode. Great jump shooter from the low block. The greatest footwork of all time. Great hook shots. Uh, unblockable turnaround. 
every move in his bag, pump fakes, spins, half spins, up and unders. He just had such, uh, probably the deepest bag on the low block ever. And he led one of the most talentless NBA champions ever. We talked about them. Vernon Maxwell, Otis Thorpe, Robert Ory, Kenny Smith. Two very tough pass to the finals. Those teams that he faces in the following year with Clyde Drexler. 60-win Jazz. A couple other 60-win teams. And the only reason that I have him above Bill Russell Carson is because of Bill's offensive limitations, like I talked about. I just want a guy that is more offensively inclined, that can go out there and serve his own buckets. Hakeem was a great offensive post hub. Now, I think you made a, a really good delineation on last episode. The thing that separates the good from the great is that multifaceted impact, not just scoring on the low block, but playmaking. Hakeem was a great outlet passer and a good passer, but he wasn't like a Jokic. He wasn't like a Wilt at his apex. He wasn't like a Bill Russell, but he could go out and he could get his own buckets. And I think that to me, those two runs are super impressive, you know, because of how talentless those NBA teams are. Bill has Sam Jones. He has Casey Jones. He has Bob Cousy. He has Tom Heinsohn. Hakeem never really had a team like that around him. You know, he gets bounced uh, from the uh, playoffs in the first round eight times. You know, that's a lot for some of these guys that are up here, but those are just not great teams. Um, so, yeah, I put... Uh, we talked a lot about Hakeem. If you want a, a, a more extensive breakdown and, uh, you know, Carson's full take on Hakeem, too, you can check out last episode. I'm not going to go too crazy here because we talked about him so in-depth last episode. But point blank, he's above Bill Russell because of those offensive limitations. I just think Hakeem's a better offensive player, and the defensive gap isn't major to me. But the distinction I would make, too, between Hakeem and Bill, like, damn, man, I've never seen anybody Bill's size move like him, dude. Bill just is so smooth as an athlete. Hakeem's just a little more lumbering, a little more Andre the Giant-esque, if that makes sense. Bill's a lot more agile, and I think, I don't know, that's one of the most underrated things about Bill's defensive case, but I think there's a major offensive gap, and that's ultimately why I went with Hakeem. I do still think that Hakeem has quite good quickness and agility for a big. It's just, yeah, I mean, Bill is sort of one of one, especially considering the era in terms of his fluidity and all around athleticism, quickness and leaping ability, all that put together with the highest IQ that we've ever seen on that end of the floor. It creates a defensive monster like we've ever never seen before. Akeem is great. I did have him at number 11. I think his floor raising is underrated. What he did dragging those teams before Clyde consistently up to around 50 wins when they just did not have very good personnel on either side of the ball. I do think that he is a great scorer and I do think he's the second greatest defender ever. And I think the 94 95 title runs are among the 10 most impressive that we have ever seen the level that he reached in those playoffs. Again, though, I actually do think that Steph is more capable of singularly propelling dominant team offenses than Akeem was defensively. I think that his greatness there actually outweighs what Akeem would do. And I would say, again, not to hammer home the Bill Russell point, but there is a big gap, right? Between being able to turn a defense, no matter the personnel, into the best in the league by four to five points on average overwhelming gap between them and number two and what Akeem would do. And part of that is just the importance of rim protection in the 1960s era, but that's the era that Russell played in. And so that's where his value is derived from. To me, we are judging people within the scope of their eras and against their peers, but I have no problem with Akeem this high ultimately. And I think that if he had better supporting cast throughout his career, 
if he was a four or five time champion, like maybe it would be undeniable that he would be up this high, but because I don't think he was a great offensive engine on his own, right? Most of those Houston offenses are average just because he was uh, scoring at like a bit above league average efficiency, didn't have Shaq kind of value there, just pressuring the rim, that sort of constant ubiquitous defensive attention. Everybody has to be terrified of him at all times. And because he wasn't a great playmaker, that was just the ultimate result. Some average offenses and some really good defenses and Akeem dragging all those teams to overachieve. The margins are just really slim up at this point. I prefer Steph's almost unrivaled historical offensive greatness and the totality of the great teams that he has propelled. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. This is John Middlecoff from 3 and Out with John Middlecoff ebay motors is here for the ride you know what i remember about my first car is that the moment i got it i wanted to improve it because like most 16 year old kids you don't exactly get a luxury automobile so you look at it you go well i need to add some speakers i need to tint out the windows i need to make this thing the coolest car possible so i can cruise around town with all my buddies waving at the babes and enjoy myself. So my favorite part of car culture when I was young was definitely the subwoofers in the back of the car. And uh, we built the boxes from scratch, had multiple 12-inch subs, and you could hear me coming from a long, long way away. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, Roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Hey guys, this is Matt Jones, Drew Franklin from the Fade This Podcast. we got a great episode coming up. Picks in all the sports, football, basketball, we do them all. But here's a preview of this week's episode. Do you think it's more embarrassing to dye your hair or to have hair plugs? I don't think either are embarrassing if you're not trying to conceal it and act like you didn't. Okay, so you think if you just come out and go, I got hair plugs... Yeah, like check out these hair. Pl- I mean, don't just walk around. Hey, tapping. Hey, hey, stranger. I don't want you thinking this is natural. You know, but I mean, <laughs> do you, you have to do that with everyone you meet? Try to act like they. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, but I mean, like, like John Cena got it. You know, when John Cena came back to wrestling, he had a bald spot, and now he doesn't. Mm-hmm. You think he should be required in all interviews to say, "Look, by the way, I covered up my bald spot." Yeah, I guess it's weird. I mean, you don't wear a sign or like put a sign in your yard, but all right. So, what about toupees? Those are the most obvious. I but let's like. say you're like Bill Self and you can get it to where it looks good. His is magical. I don't even know if his is a toupee. It is. I think he went into the future and had a procedure we haven't even discovered yet. And this episode was brought to you in partnership with DraftKings. To hear more, listen and subscribe to Fade This on iHeartRadio or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
My number nine is Wilt Chamberlain, who we've talked about a little so far. And I do think it's important to view his career in stages like we talked about. You have the Warriors years where he is putting up, in terms of raw production, completely unrivaled historical numbers. But again, the Warriors in all of those years peak at fourth of nine teams in offensive rating. They are winning 54% of their games. And of course, I think that Wilt is making them better offensively. I do not think he is nearly maximizing the impact he could have on a team offense, though, when he's averaging two assists per game because he is not making the guys around him better, which is like the single greatest thing you can do to improve a team offense. Basketball is played five on five. It's not played one on one. It's not played one on five either. So that was just never going to drive winning at the highest level, regardless of supporting cast. And I do think if you look at Akeem, if you look at Kevin Garnett, those guys with the totality of their two-way impact and like KG's playmaking were better floor raisers for really long times when they played with bad supporting cast than what Wilt is doing in those Warriors years. I do think it's interesting. Wilt gives up on a Warriors team that's off to a 10 and 28 start with him there. And then a couple years later, I mean, it's not an apples to apples comparison at all because like Nate Thurman was very young with Wilt and then he gets better. No doubt the team is better, but a couple years later, Rick Barry takes a very similar core to the finals. My point is just that it's not like Wilt was carrying them to thrive in the way that we have seen some other dudes carry mess supporting cast throughout the scope of NBA history. Then you do have the Sixers years, where from 65 to 68, they win 73% of their games. Wilt averages 28, 24, and 7 on 58% shooting over those years. And I do think the 67 peak is one of the highest ever. He shoots 68% from the field, but as we talked about before, constantly weaponizing the attention he's drawing out of the post, running handoffs, finding cutters, finding shooters, and anchoring a really good defense. He leads them to the number one offense in 1967 and the number one defense in 1968, along with three straight top three defenses. But what I do think is worth noting here, people always talk about the talent point when they're comparing the Sixers and the Celtics, right? I think, first of all, that sometimes we overrate the Celtics talent. Okay, like is Sam Jones an unreasonable best offensive player for Bill Russell to have on team offenses that weren't good? Of course not. Hal Greer is better than Sam Jones. Hal Greer is a better scorer. Hal Greer is a better playmaker. Hal Greer is on the 67 Warriors along with seven-time All-Star Chet Walker, along with young Billy Cunningham who would go on to become an MVP candidate, along with Wally Jones and Luke Jackson. It's a great team. And after Wilt leaves... The Sixers win 55 games the next year. That's not to discredit his peak. That is to say that was a damn good historically underrated collection of talent that was going to win a whole lot of games no matter what. Then you go to the Lakers years. He joins a 52-win team that is the best offense in the league. Their offense actually takes a step back when Wilt gets there in terms of efficiency. And for these years, he is a number three option basically. Telligent Baylor, arguably, in the first couple years, and then certainly to Gail Goodrich in terms of uh, scoring reliance, if you're looking at like the 72-73 years. He does anchor two top three defenses, but again, even though he was monstrous there and had this awesome size and athleticism, 
there were a whole bunch of little things that Russell did a lot better that made a big difference. Russell was much more sound positionally. He was more versatile in terms of his ability to actually at times guard the perimeter, but more importantly, step up, challenge jump shooters. Wilt was very fixated on statistics, always. Blocking shots, grabbing a whole lot of rebounds. Generally, that meant he was going to pretty much park under the rim. And I was actually just reading a Wilt biography. It's not great, so I'm not going to recommend it. But they talk about the Knicks in the 1970 finals sort of dissecting him with their jump shooting because he would not come up and challenge them. And so you consider that. You consider how much he would chase blocks and goaltend. And Logan, like, I mean, we both talked about this watching the 67 Sixers. He's got multiple goaltendings every single game. People always talk about Bill Russell making sure that he blocked his shots inbounds, trying to direct them towards teammates. He actually did that. I promise it's a real thing and it's unbelievable to watch. Wilt wanted the flashy block, right? He wanted to block it out of bounds. So there's a bunch of things that make it so, yes, Wilt is a great defensive player, but Bill Russell is leaps and leaps and bounds ahead of him. And that's why he could turn out number one defenses like nobody we've ever seen. It's not even close. So if you look at the Lakers years, I mean, Wilt's scoring volume is way down, right? He's putting up like 15 points per game. He's basically doing what Russell did. More efficient as a scorer, inferior as a defender, similar playmaking value. And he's got really, really obscenely talented teams. And he gets one ring out of his entire stretch there of 1969 through 1973. So this is what I'm saying. It's like... When you think about all of the skills that Wilt had at various stages, sure, it's incredible. But when did he put it all together? It's really just those Sixers years. And Russell did it for 13 years. And I remember last year, one of the things I said was like, maybe if Wilt was in a different situation, he would have understood to maximize his skill set earlier. But I just... I don't think that we can do that, man. We're getting into too much of a hypothetical zone there instead of looking at the reality, which is that Russell immediately got it and immediately drove winning because of it. So the results just ultimately don't stack up to Wilt's talent level. Play style with bad teams wasn't conducive to good winning basketball. And then when he's playing more winning basketball in later years, it's with loading team loaded teams. It results in two rings. I also think when you are looking at with scoring numbers, regular season, they are historic. Playoffs, they're a lot less historic. It's 22.5 points per game on plus 3.9% shooting, true shooting above league average. Warriors years, his scoring average dropped by 7 points per game in the playoffs. So that sort of obscene volume just didn't scale well to enhancing team offenses, driving winning, or to the playoff stage for the most part. So... Overall, I think when I look at a guy like Shaq, who I have one spot above him, his overwhelming offensive value elevated teams by more and for longer. So that's why I have Wilt at nine. I think that that is a low ranking. It's lower than I had him when I did a list a year ago, but I feel better about this. I still can't put him lower though, because of the totality of his basketball skill and greatness and the fact that he was a driving force on a couple of title teams. But I just think the ability doesn't actually equal the results for Wilt, and he is responsible for that. It's not a product of supporting cast. I have Wilt Chamberlain at number eight, and I have him over Bill Russell because of the offensive difference, like I discussed, and because Wilt slept with every broad on the planet. We never <laughs> talk about Bill pulling any girls. So, I mean, just like, why am I going to put a guy high you can't pull? Um, I don't know. I, I think Wilt's obscene scoring numbers 
I just don't think Bill Russell could have ever smelled that, and I really value it. I get what you're saying, too, about the winning impact, right? That's the most important thing, and so I understand the fundamental basis of that, but 50 points in a single season. He's got the most career 50 pieces, 60 pieces, 70 pieces, his 100-point game, and when he did put it together, it was something special. He's got 4.4 assists per game. That's the second most assists per game by a center in NBA history behind Jokic. In that regular season, you threw out the numbers, 20, uh, 24, 24-8, and 68% from the field. In that playoff run, 22, 29, and 9, 58%. Um, and I do think he's a defensive monster. I, I think you make a good point too, dude, because Bill is, Bill is hustling in all of his clips, dude. Bill is hustling, like saving loose balls too. I don't think Wilt had that kind of engagement on the defensive end ever in that, I think you're right, that fundamental understanding of how to weaponize, like, his defensive impact reportedly bill uh or wilt excuse me would have been around nine blocks per game like 8.8 he is a freak athlete 7-1 275 pounds with a 7-8 wingspan over a 40 inch vertical and you know we always talk about bill clamping wilt right in their head-to-head matchups and i think of this era bill is the best answer that you have for him but wilt is still getting his in head-to-head matchups no they don't win in the regular season, Wilt is 37 and 57 head to head against Bill. In the playoffs, Wilt is 20 and 29 against Bill head to head. But he's 29, 28 and 4 on nearly 50% in the in the regular season. In the playoffs, he's 26, 28 and 4 on 50.8%. So the best defender of this era, I mean, Wilt is still he's not putting up his regular season numbers. He's not dominating the way he could in the regular season. But he's still really damn good on the best defender of this era and he is a great defender so because of the offensive gap and the difference in skill set and talent I think you're right I don't think Wilt ever really put it together until 67 but I look at his scoring skill set and I just value that so much more than Bill where I think he's just limited uh, more on that end so I have Wilt over Bill I have Wilt over Hakeem um I think there's an offensive gap between him and Hakeem. Again, granted, different eras, different skill sets, different ways they got their buckets. Will's one of the greatest scorers of all time, and so I'm really going to heavily value that. He comes in at number eight, but I think there are a pair of centers that are better than him all time. I don't want to sound like a broken record here. I do just think it comes down to, again, Russell's defensive value surpassing anything that we've ever seen and you know, it can almost be tough to conceive of because of how next level it is within the scope of that era. The value that just surpasses the gaudy raw scoring numbers that didn't enhance team offenses above all else. Like that's the most important thing, right? Wilt comes into the league and he's immediately putting up these crazy numbers, but it's on the seventh offensive rating out of eight teams. It's on the sixth of eight teams. And I also think Of course, we have to account for the astronomical pace of the era for some of Wilt's raw numbers, too. Like, everybody was less efficient. There's also 125 possessions a game. So it's much closer to the equivalent of scoring, like, 28 to 30 points per game by today's pace standards, which isn't a perfect comparison because teams are also just more efficient now. But I do think it has to be noted, right? I mean, you have Elgin Baylor scoring. 39 points per game you have oscar robertson's 30 plus point triple double offensive numbers were just inflated as well when wilts was putting up his absolute peak production my number eight is shaquille o'neal logan 
I think his value starts with the fact that he is a historically great scorer and offensive engine. From 1993 to 2003, averaged 27.6 points per game on plus 5.6% true shooting versus average. He is the most overwhelmingly physically dominant paint force that we have ever seen. All respect to Wilt, but Wilt was much more inclined to do it with the finger roll over you or the turnaround. He also wasn't like 300 plus pounds of just pure power. He was very strong. He wasn't built like Shaq. Out of the post, you had to double Shaq or he would destroy you. He would overpower you and get to the rim or he would get to that hook, which was extremely efficient. Of course, out of pick and roll, he was a massive target as well, but it's really overwhelmingly this post-scoring dominance. And he's a good playmaker who maybe wasn't perfect in terms of making the reads out of his doubles every time. He wasn't going to make the optimal pass like Jokic where it's, oh my God, look at that skip pass to the corner. How did he do that? But maybe he just kicks it out to the nearest available open guy on the perimeter, then swings and creates an open shot for a teammate, right? He was good enough at that. And there was such constant attention on him that he drove three top three offenses in Orlando. Then he drove five more top three offenses with Kobe in LA and a couple more top six offenses. So still pretty elite. And then immediately once he goes to Miami, takes them from being a league average offense to a top five offense. Again, his playoff peak is also one of the highest that we have ever seen from 2000 to 2002. That's the Lakers three-peat in the playoffs. Shaq averaged 30 14 and a half and three assists per game on plus 4.8% true shooting versus average. Even better in the finals, where to me he is a top three performer ever, only with MJ and LeBron. He goes 36, 15, three and a half assists, three blocks per game on nearly 60% from the field in the 2000 to 2002 finals. And that's an unrivaled three year final stretch, specifically in NBA history. On the other side of the ball, he is a good but definitely not great defensive big. He's a very effective rim projector, but I think his overall effort and engagement on that end was pretty inconsistent, and he just wasn't a guy who was going to churn out great team defenses like the great defensive bigs of all time. But because of his overwhelming offensive value and still plus defensive value throughout his prime, a huge impact on winning. His on-off number, plus 85 is fantastic. That starts in 1997 for him, so we missed the first few years of his career. The Lakers won over 73% of the games that he played. They won under 53% without him, so of course they were still going to be a respectable team, but there's no question that he was the driving force in them being a contender because to me in that like 2000, 2001 range, he's clearly the best player on the planet. 2002, it's very close between him and Tim Duncan, but he's undeniably top two and then the Heat won 62% of their games with Shaq. They won 34% without him. So he was still bringing massive offensive value, even if he wasn't at his peak. Certainly in terms of athleticism, his scoring volume wasn't what it once was. Still, his presence was valuable in terms of the gravity there around the rim. And his longevity is great. He's a top five player for like 12 years. Only eight-time first-team All-NBA, which is fantastic. I say only, but top five player for 12 years just because like the league was so center dominant at that time you think about the dudes who are comp competing for first team spots it's david robinson and akeem throughout the 90s you got patrick ewing in there as well as Shaq. so you can't just use oh who was the first team all nba center right these are the top five players because that position was so loaded his weaknesses 
He didn't dominate the defensive end like other great defensive bigs, although I think his offensive value mostly outweighs that. But also, versus the great perimeter offensive engines ever, Shaq had some real limitations, right? In clutch scenarios, he did not have a skill set that was conducive to getting himself a bucket. He didn't have that level of offensive skill. Of course, he was a guy who you were terrified to send to the line. And I just think overall, as a guy who had to be fed on the interior, he was a bit more reliant on great perimeter talent. And all of his great teams, he played with a great guard. If it was Penny Hardaway, if it was Kobe Bryant, if it was Dwayne Wade, who, of course, on the 2006 title team, I think it's worth noting, is way better than Shaq. So I value the three Lakers rings much more than I value that 06 Heat ring, even though Shaq was still a star-level player and definitely important to that title. He just had a particularly bad finals, but, like, they still don't get there without Shaq. No question about that. So... I just value the guys who could do it all a bit more, who had more shot variety, who had more impact as a playmaker. But I do think that outside of Nikola Jokic, who was like the epitome of shot variety and playmaking brilliance from the center spot, Shaq makes a really strong case for the most dominant offensive center ever, just because we have never seen anybody dominate the paint like that. It's really valuable. It puts him at number eight. It is still not the most valuable thing to me in my opinion, though. So I'll go ahead and spoil it about Shaq. I will not be talking about Shaq in this episode. Uh, Ooh, very interesting. I think Shaq's dominance is not matched (laughs) matched by very few players in NBA history. I mean, that peak, as you mentioned, from 2000 to 2002. And I get what you're saying because I think that is the knock on Shaq. And I'm surprised you went with longevity because... He is good for a while, but on those Heat teams, man, he's pretty washed. Like, in the playoffs, he was consistently down from the regular season. I still think he had a gravity about him in Miami that, you know, helped him. Just the level of attention that he had to be respected with because he was still a physical force. But uh, his numbers were consistently down in that era. Um, But his peak, I think, is one of the highest in basketball. Well, go ahead. I also think it's worth considering that when... Shaq goes to Miami, that's year 13. (laughs) Like he had already been a dominant force for 12 years. He comes into the league, in my opinion, probably a top five player. 2005, Shaq is still MVP runner up. 2006, he takes a bit of a drop off. And then, yeah, by 2007, to me, he's nowhere near his apex. Like those years aren't really working towards his case too much, in my opinion. It's more Orlando, LA, and then the first couple years of his Miami prime, he's still quite good, but definitely not at that same level. Um, I, I just think that, I think you're right. I think he's a good defensive big, not among the, the league's greatest, but, uh, you know, was effective on that. And not super versatile, couldn't switch out to the perimeter or anything like that, but uh, a great interior force. And I think, like you said, one of the greatest offensive engines uh, by a center ever and just one of the most truly dominant ever. So I'll save some of my spiel um, on Shaq for a later episode, but I think his peak is rivaled by very few players in NBA history. Um, at my number seven spot, and again, this was tough. I literally switched that right before this show started. I played with seven, six, seven and six at that five spot as well. So Shaq could have very well ended up at either of these spots. This was a brutally hard decision to make. At number seven, I have Larry Bird. And at his peak peak from 50, uh, from 85 to 88, he's 28, 10, and 7 on 52, 41 splits. 
Uh, from 80 to 92, he's 24, 10, and 6 on 49, 38. And his peak is great as well. A three-time MVP, he wins three straight. Um, I think I think Larry is a criminally underrated passer, a really underrated defender, and obviously one of the greatest shooters in NBA history. And Larry is so good at weaponizing his shooting to initiate inside the arc, right? You have these great perimeter initiators like Magic, these great passers. Larry is so deceptive and so good. Like, everybody has to respect his shot. When you see Larry cock it back and get ready to shoot, guys are jumping out of their shoes because you have to. If you let Larry shoot that, he's going to wet it right in your mouth. Sorry. That opened up passing lanes. That opens up uh, lanes to the rim. It just opens up the entirety of the Boston Celtics offense. And he plays with great players. Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, Dennis Johnson, Danny Ainge. But he's so clearly the best player uh, on all of those teams. And so I think Bird is a better scorer and better defender there, uh, than Magic. His efficiency took a slight dip in the playoffs. Nothing like alarming. But I just prefer Magic as a pure offensive engine. I also think it's important to note Magic bests him head-to-head in the finals 2-1. to one. Granted, uh, you have to mention that the Rockets upset the Lakers one year when the contest could have materialized. Celtics still win the championship. But Magic has the head-to-head edge. Uh, I think Magic is a better pure offensive engine. And in comparison to Shaq, I just prefer Shaq's two-way value because I think you're getting similar offensive value because of how dominant Shaq was. Again, Larry is more versatile as a passer, as a floor spacer, as an all-around three-level scorer. But I prefer Shaq's two-way value because while Larry's a great defender, I just think being dominant as a center uh, and as a defender is just slightly more valuable than a great perimeter defender. Again, This is like pulling teeth, Carson. I wanted to get Larry. I wanted to get Magic. I wanted to get Shaq. I wanted all of them to be in my top five players of all time. Uh, We cannot, we sadly cannot live in that reality. So I bump Larry to seven for those reasons. I have Larry at number six and the Magic debate is really tough too because both guys are just automatically propelling elite teams throughout the 80s decade, right? Magic wins five rings and nine finals appearances. Larry gets three in five. He is playing in the tougher conference, but Magic ends up ultimately leading the better teams and also is able to sustain that level for longer, even if it's just by a few years. Both dudes come into the league as dominant forces. Magic plays 12 years as a dominant force. I would argue that Larry really only plays nine once you're looking at the 90 to 92 range after his major injury, I mean, his back, just his athleticism is so limited. His defense takes a big hit and his offensive production and efficiency also takes a hit. So, I mean, he's still great. He still makes the Celtics a good team. It's not peak Larry Bird. And so magic having those few more years of like top three player on the planet value along with more finals appearances, more rings. I do think he is a better offensive engine in a vacuum. One of the most efficient scorers we've ever seen who was a constant mismatch there and could put up real volume when he needed to, but is also by far the greatest playmaker of all time, enhanced his teammates more than probably anybody ever in terms of just directly feeding them, creating that shot quality with his passing. Pioneered the greatest offensive stretch in basketball history. I think that that and the longevity slightly outweighs the fact that I do think Larry actually has a two-way edge here, but both guys were ultimately getting their value from being all-time great offensive players. I think Magic's a bit better there and did it for a bit longer. But 
Larry does have one of the great scoring and playmaking combinations that we have ever seen. He is an all-time great jump shooter, and that drove his offensive brilliance in so many ways, right? Massive weapon out of the post because of his shot making there. If it's turnarounds, if it's facing up, the ability to shoot against a contest with very little airspace. Out of isolation, he could get a tough bucket at any time because of that. And really importantly, as an off-ball target, spotting up, curling off of screens. He was a very dynamic off-ball player overall, and he had to be paid constant attention to there or he would kill you. But also, a very high IQ cutter. So, I mean, that's so valuable when you're applying constant pressure to defense. It's like what we talk about with Steph. Larry had a lot of that value as well. Not just a guy who had to have the ball in his hands, but his variety there was incredible too. He had elite craftiness when you're talking about the use of fakes and his body control and footwork. <laughs> oh, the, cra the the crafty white boy. I mean, dude, he was crafty. He and Mikhail, both of them, man, they were crafty as can be. And he has all-time touch when you're looking at scoring in the paint, the runners and whatnot. Had a really nice step back from the mid-range area that he could always create space with. And is just overall an absurd, difficult shot maker. And then, I mean, he's a genius passer. Has to be among the 10 best passers that we've ever seen. And I think what is so unique about Larry is that so many of the great passers are point guards, first and foremost, right? But dudes who are like dominating with the ball in their hands, and especially in today's NBA, running pick and roll, making their reads out of that. Larry was so dynamic. I don't know that anybody has ever played within the flow of the game as perfectly as he did, right? Spotting cutters off of post-ups. He's the greatest touch passer ever to me, which is the incredible blend of passing talent and also the IQ to understand, hey, I have this opportunity for this split-second window. Let's make the most of it. Dynamic in transition. Elite outlet passer with some of the touchdown passes he threw. As a driver, super inventive with no looks and over the heads. He was just so deceptive. He was going to create an advantage and he was not going to key the defender in on what he was doing. Good entry passer, which was really important when you're playing with a couple of post-up bigs. And uh, like that, at his height from 6'9", with all the angles he had from anywhere on the floor, within the flow of the game, that's just so valuable in terms of making a great team offense, which he did. The Celtics were a top eight offense with him every year. 11 of the 12 years, they were a top six offense, and they were a top three offense five times, including an all-time great offense in 1988 and he's an elite rebounder i mean career average of 10 boards per game that's creating second chances on offense he's a very skilled second chance scorer as well and it contributes to his defensive value where he was a legitimate plus disrupting passing lanes he had great hands and instincts and he was offering some secondary rim protection at his size especially in his younger years when he was a bit more athletic not that he was ever a really good athlete but a little bit more athletic at that stage. He was strong. He had very good size, a really sound defender positionally who was able to guard the post, obviously, and mostly played the four there. Very high IQ. So, I mean, because he didn't have great athleticism, right? He, he couldn't reach like elite heights defensively, but he was a really important part of the Celtics automatically turning out top 10 defenses, often top five defenses before his injury, at which point he totally falls off on that end of the floor. But it's one of the highest peaks ever. 
84 to 88, you read out the numbers. Elite scoring, rebounding, playmaking, efficiency, good plus defense. He's MVP for three straight years, something that we have not seen since, and deservedly so. And he leads to four straight finals appearances and a pair of titles in that range. So, like, that Larry, man, got to be one of the five highest peaks that we've ever seen to me. That sort of all-around basketball dominance. And he had a massive winning impact throughout his career. As a rookie, turned a 29-win roster into a 61-win roster. And that is not like what we have with Tim Duncan, right? Where he comes in and it's like, oh my God, the Spurs went from 20 wins to 60. Well, David Robinson missed the entire season. He comes back. Sean Elliott was hurt a bunch. He comes back. That's different. Like, this is legitimately a very similar basketball roster. He turns the number 19 offense of 22 teams into the number two offense as a rookie. He is, I believe, third in MVP voting as a rookie. Like, that's just such crazy dominance off the jump. And then he got better in that 84 to 88 range. Like, significantly so. The Celtics won almost 74% of their games with him, 53.8% without him. So again, they had good rosters. They were going to be solid no matter what. He elevated them to be all-time great, constantly contending, propelled them to 60 wins in six of his first nine seasons. Incredible. Playoffs through 88. You mentioned his true shooting takes a bit of a hit. It's about plus 2% versus league average. And I do think that that's worth noting. Regular season, Larry, uh, at his peak, is really efficient. It does take a hit post-injury, but he's not like the most efficient of all time because he wasn't a great rim pressure and he wasn't able to maximize the value of the three-point shot, which would be such an insane weapon for him at volume. Today, it was a lot of mid-range jump shooting, but he was so historically great at it combined with the passing and his all-around scoring versatility that it does make him an all-time great offensive engine. Really, the only weakness in Larry's resume to me is pretty much that he has nine seasons at that level. He's 19 to 90 to 92 again. His athleticism is gone. And I guess I would say that he's not an elite two-way player, but he's still a really good one. It's pretty much just he only played nine years. Other than that, Larry could be even higher, but the resumes above him are all, I mean, just absolutely insane. And his longevity is the weakest here. But what he did in those nine years, as one of the greatest all-around players ever, especially offensively, driving almost unparalleled team success throughout NBA history, is tough to overstate, and I value it enough to put him at number six. Yeah, so did we leapfrog your number seven guy? I assume that, I mean, we're down to the... We're down to the nitty-gritty here, which means you're, we're probably either looking at Tim Duncan or Magic Johnson, if I had to guess. Who do you have at seven? Well, I'm going to flip this back on you since I just did a monologue, and I think we're probably going to have the same guy just flipped at six and seven. Although, I don't know. Who do you have at six? At six, I have Magic Johnson, and I consider oh! Magic uh, for my top five. He was uh, he was tough. Um, I... He has a slightly longer peak, uh, 80 91, like you alluded to. Uh, he's 27 and 11 on 52% uh, in that time span with 1.9 steals per game. Three time MVP, a five time champ, and a three time finals MVP. Flat out, Magic Johnson is one of the greatest passers ever. I mean, it's absurd. <laughs> like, it's just so much fun going back and watching Magic. He played like he had eyes in the back of his head, on the side of his head, and, you know, obviously he had a regular pair of eyes, too, in the front of his head. But like Larry, super deceptive. Like, Magic would never tip you off about what he was about to do if it's those little shuffle passes to a guy in transition. 
If it's a little dump off to the dunker spot, it's it's insane. I mean, Magic is the greatest passer of all time, and that's what makes him so much fun to watch. But not only fun to watch, I mean, it produced great all-time offense. They called it Showtime for a reason. He's a four-time league leader in assists per game. And in that peak, 80 to 91, all of those offenses are top 10. 11 of them are top five. Seven of them are number one, and two of them are number two. I mean, in terms of elevating you know, team offenses to another level. I mean, there's very few offensive engines like Magic. Now, I did consider putting Larry above Magic because I think uh, in terms of shooting and defensive value uh, and scoring overall, like I just don't think that Magic is the caliber of Bird in those categories, but I just don't think Bird is as pure of a offensive engine as Magic is. And he's just not a great scorer, right? Magic scored when he needed to, but his goal was to get the offense. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that, <laughs> damn, that was a funny face, Carson. Uh, Magic could shoot a little bit. He had a really good post game, turnaround, step throughs, hook shots. Uh, I wouldn't call like Magic like a great, great all time scorer, but he could get buckets, and he was very efficient too. Like Magic didn't take, Magic didn't take inefficient like bad shots. You know that's another aspect of it. Ultimately, what it came down for me in limiting Magic from being higher is. Uh, one, uh, the longevity, it's its pretty good. It's not as great as some of these other guys in my top five. And uh, again, two-way value. I just think that there are more valuable positions for great defenders. And I think Magic was a good but not great defender. But he is one of the greatest offensive players of all time. He is the greatest passer of all time. And I considered putting Magic as high as number four on my list. Ultimately, I think there were guys who were better two-way and another guy who was just more dominant at his peak. So that is why Magic was sadly left out of my top five. That was probably the toughest decision I had to make on this list. The reason that I made that face when you said that you don't think Magic is a great scorer is just that I absolutely believe he is. And the volume, right, is not going to compare all time, but that's exactly what we're talking about. A lot of the all-time great offensive players will sacrifice a bit of scoring volume for playmaking to enhance those around them to create even better shots for their teammates where they could maybe get a good shot, but the defense is keyed in on them. There is no better playmaker in NBA history than Magic. There is nobody who has more consistently propelled number one offenses than Magic in the history of this game. And I just think we've seen when he needed to in terms of volume, right? Like if you look at that 87 through 90 range where he doesn't have Kareem, who's carrying more of that scoring load and he's easily scoring 22 to 24 points per game maintaining some of the best efficiency that we've ever seen and maintaining his playmaking volume big playoff spots obviously everybody thinks about his rookie year game six against the Sixers he turns up and he drops 42 when he needed to he was just a constant mismatch with his size and the level of shot making that he possessed in the lane the hooks the floaters, his body control there. He was a good jump shooter as well. Not from three, obviously, but from the mid-range. I have Magic a little bit higher. I just think like that consistent level of elite team success driven by him. And of course, I know that he has really good supporting casts. And I get the Akeem, the, the Kareem thing. But like 1980, Kareem is their best player, of course. But Kareem's not out there and Magic plays an all-time performance to seal the deal. And then every ring after that, I just think Magic is point blank their best player. By 87 and 88, I mean, 87, Kareem's not really a star to me anymore. 88, Kareem's averaging 10 points per game. 
they're still turning out the best offense in the league, winning titles because Magic is the best player on the planet. 89, they're turning out a number one offense going to the finals. 91, they are in the finals. It's all because of Magic's incredible offensive greatness. That's not to diminish like James Worthy, but I mean, any all-time great is going to play with other great players. Are you the guy? Are you the driving force? That's what's most important to me, and I think that it overwhelmingly does apply to Magic. So I have him in my top five number seven i have tim duncan who i'm honestly pretty pumped that you have in the top five i had a real debate between him and larry but i think the reason that i have both magic and larry above tim duncan is valuing peak over longevity i think duncan's peak is extremely high I think it's probably underrated, but with all of the winning that Magic and Larry did in their 12 years and the fact that I just prefer their peaks as these all-time offensive engines, I did give them both the slight edge. But Duncan's a top three defender of all time. I think he is arguably underrated there. I mean, is Tim Duncan underrated in every way? Like in terms of the day-to-day discourse, probably. I think a lot of people have him top 10 all time, maybe even as high as like seven, but people don't celebrate the things that made him so great like they do with so many other all-time legends. He led 11 straight top three defenses. That includes five number one defenses and three straight after David Robinson retired. Of course, like that dual rim protector thing was really lethal in 1998 through 2000. And then David Robinson got real old and he was still out there and he was still bringing defensive value. But Duncan is far and away the reason those are great defenses and why they maintain great defenses after Robinson. And then after the 11 straight streak to start his career, he anchored another top three defense, excuse me, three more top three defenses And then three more top 10 defenses on top of that. So that's 17 top 10 defenses, 14 top three defenses anchored by Tim Duncan. And another reason he's underrated, right? He's not the craziest athlete that we've ever seen. His shot blocking numbers were monstrous. They are not peak Akeem. They are not peak Dikembe. Dude, they're not peak Theo Ratliff. But his timing and positioning was perfect. I think he is probably the most perfectly sound help defender of the modern era. He did have elite shot blocking, though. He was one of the best rebounders in the league. He was a great post defender. I think holds up much better than, like, KG in those situations. Just a bit more uh, physically equipped to do so as a bigger, stronger guy. But he was also agile enough to hang on the perimeter. He was just so near perfect defensively. And then I do think he's underrated offensively. He was a really skilled post scorer and a good offensive hub in his prime. Of course, he's the expert of the bank shot. He really did use it more than like anybody else in history. But the ability to use jabs to create space, he had good body control. And you can see these dynamic spin moves from him in the early 2000s. He had an awesome hook, good use of fakes and step throughs. Like he had the bag that is required of a great post scorer number one. And then he was a high level playmaker. I think underrated there. And how good he was at dissecting double teams, which really shows in like the 2003 run, right? Obviously, that's when he famously had the should have been quadruple double. But he's able to make those skip passes. He's able to consistently get the ball out to teammates to create high quality looks. And I do think that that 2001 to 2003 peak and also just how remarkable it was that Duncan was carrying these teams is all time special. Like... 
In those years, he led three straight top 10 offenses. That is with Antonio Daniels and Derek Anderson, like those level of players as the number two scorers on those teams. That's how good of a scorer and playmaker Duncan was at his peak. It's not, you know, top 10 all time there, but that is by so far his second value to being a top three defensive player ever. In the playoffs those three years, 25, 15, and five with 3.3 blocks per game efficiently. Those are his averages. And through 2007 in the playoffs, he was 24, 12 and a half, three and a half on plus 4% true shooting versus league average. So I just think because of how long he played after that, sometimes people forget and undersell his absolute peak. And also just because it wasn't the most exciting play style, but good God did it drive winning. And I think that from 2002 to 2005, he's the best player in the world. Again, 2002, he and Shaq are battling for that title. After that, I would take him above KG. I would take him above Kobe for those next few years. He had a huge winning impact because of this all-around skill set. His career on court plus minus per 100 possessions plus 9.7 is the highest on this list. Plus 8 on off is really, really elite as well. Much higher than like Kobe's, which was at plus 4 as we mentioned. And people talk about privileged situations throughout NBA history, right? I think, well, a lot of people will say, hey, Kobe played with Shaq and those 2008 through 2010 teams were really, really good, better than people give them credit for. And then people might throw back, well, Duncan walked into a situation with David Robinson and then he played with Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili. And I just think Duncan largely made those situations. Like they are not contending when we're looking at the 1999 team without Tim Duncan. David Robinson was very good at that point. He was nowhere near his apex. And the rest of that supporting cast, you know, it's good. It's not super impressive. 2003 is one of the craziest rosters to win a title when you consider how young Tony Parker was and how old David Robinson was. It's a top five playoff run ever to me that we saw from Tim Duncan. And it's like Tony Parker, Monterey, you know, but yes, they are great players. Are they you know, historic outliers, like is peak Tony Parker so much better than peak Pau Gasol, so much better than peak Paul Pierce, if you're talking about KG, it's like, no, of course not. Great players play with great players if you, if they're going to win titles. So I just think in no way was Duncan an outlier in terms of his fortune. And I think what he did in bad circumstances as one of the great floor raisers ever, 2001, 2003, they win 58, 58, 60 games. Those rosters suck. That is insane. That is insane that he did that. And he was the leading guy on six top 10 offenses while he's transforming you into a top three defense, no matter what, for almost his entire career. So I prefer the consistency of that two-way dominance to uh, Shaq. I mean, Shaq had such a high peak, but to be able to be a really good offensive number one and a top three defensive force ever for as long as Duncan did it, driving teams that were that consistently great, obviously. I mean, won 50 games every year of his career with the exception of the lockout shortened season where they go 37 and 13, which is, believe it or not, a 60-plus win pace. I think there's a real case with his historic longevity on top of this great peak that he should be top five. But I do slightly prefer, as I talked about, the all-time offensive peaks of Bird and Larry pushing contenders year in, year out. And I do still prefer all-time great offensive engines over all-time great defensive engines with the exception of Bill Russell because he is in a different tier in terms of how singularly that made his teams great and how far above the rest of the league that 
he was and those defenses were because of him. But I love Timmy D in the top five, man. And I actually think it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you laid out a lot of the reasons why it's the consistency, the longevity, the peak, the two-way value, and the consistent success regardless of surrounding talent. I'm so glad you brought that point. I was saving that for next episode, uh, especially the point about <laughs> to win a championship, you have to have great players. I mean, that's just like, that's a, that's a tenant. To be a great dynasty, great players are going to play with you. That's why like a run like Akeem stands out so much in NBA history because that roster is so bad. Like inherently, the Showtime Lakers had great talent, right? Um, MJ played with great players. LeBron has played with great players. I think it is kind of, I think it is foolish to hold that against him. But then when you look at those seasons like you laid out from 01 to 03, how bad those rosters are, it doesn't matter the surrounding talent. Tim Duncan was going to make them great. And the longevity ultimately is the reason that Tim Duncan cracks my top five. I mean, he was great for so long. And he is one of the greatest defensive players ever. Uh, I'll get into the case uh, next episode and where he ranks in my top five. But uh, I think Duncan, man, it's, he's understated and he's underrated, Carson. He didn't run his mouth. He never talked shit. He handled business. Like, and that's why, like, those quiet guys, man, we talk about Marvin Harrison in the Top 10 Wideouts episode, and he played a boring style of play. So, I mean, I think that's why Tim isn't as, you know, consensusly high-ranked as a Kobe as some of these other guys that we put into these classes. Um, but Tim is in my top five, and I'll get into that next episode. I think it's also largely aesthetics. This is what we talked about with Kobe, but like big time, people big love time. the dazzling one-on-one -on -one score. Timmy was not that. I will say one advantage for him over Marvin Harrison is that he didn't ever kill anybody. But yeah, I mean, playing with great players is inevitable for the all-time greats. Did you not know that Marvin Harrison killed somebody? Yeah, look it up, buddy. Dude, Read about it. Dude, I do think news. there's a distinction to be made. 15 years ago, it was big news. Yeah. When you're talking about playing with the great players, right? Like, I think people will unfairly throw that at Duncan, who is so far and away the number one on those first four title teams. Or a Bill Russell, where it's like, yeah, Kuzli, Havlicek, Sam Jones, they're really good, but the concentration of talent in the league was insane. None of them are in any way rivaling him for the best player. Versus, like, I mean, if you have a more manufactured situation where it's KD, Steph, Clay, and Draymond. Or when we're talking about Kobe, like... It does matter to me if you are the guy on that team. So there is a bit of nuance to that. But there you have it, folks. Top five is coming in hot tomorrow. Logan is disturbed because he just learned that Marvin Harrison mm -hmm. killed somebody and mm -hmm. got away with it. But that's just the way it goes, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If you guys enjoyed this one, you can, of course, subscribe to the volume YouTube page. Continue to stay tuned into our content there. You can listen to the podcast across audio platforms. You can follow us on social media, TikTok at NerdSesh, Instagram at NerdSesh, Twitter at Nerd underscore Sesh. You can join our Discord at the link tree across our social media bios just to talk football, basketball with us and our community there. And you can buy NerdSesh merch. Logan's got the flag behind him, as do I. We've got the hoodies. We've got the hats. We've got the shirts. So go ahead, check all that stuff out at thevolume.com or also in our link tree. And with that, as always, we'll be back with the final part Friday. I have been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was NerdSesh.
Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at VisitCalifornia.com.